0: For generations, kids, mainly little boys, have played with little green soldiers going to any dollar store here in New York City, and you're bound to find a bag of them for sale. But among today's video game-obsessed youth, are toy soldiers still relevant? The answer is a resounding yes, if you ask Jamie Delson.
1: I rarely find that kids having been exposed to toy soldiers don't love them.
0: Delson is the founder and owner of the Toy Soldier Company, based right across the Hudson River from Manhattan in Jersey City. Hi, I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. Jamie Delson talks about his passion for toy soldiers and his business selling them later in the show. But first, we head to Manhattan's Lower East Side to visit another toy company. Well, sort of. The Lower East Side Toy Company is actually a front for a modern-day speakeasy called The Back Room.
2: My name is John Baronis, and I am owner of The Back Room.
0: Now, The Back Room, you do not have a sign outside that says The Back Room. You have a sign at the gate that says
2: lower east side toy company it's actually disinformation so uh, my first place ever that i've uh that I've put together was the auction house on 89th street it's still there 24 years or so and back then we didn't have a sign up and everybody thought we were going to be out of business in a few months because how could he not have a sign and uh well that particular place we didn't want to draw everybody on second avenue it was more like fifth year of college there and that wasn't our demographic. So we um, didn't put up a sign, and when we came down here to the Lower East Side at the back room, I just wanted to take it a step further, I guess. It was, um, and we just put in Lower East Side Toy Company, and we have a little toy shop in the back, faux toy shop, and that has to do with this uh, particular establishment being a, um, a speakeasy. And it actually was an authentic speakeasy in the sense that 90 years ago people were drinking illegally in this space. And all the speakeasies of the day um, had a fake front, if you will. Chumley's, for instance, years ago, the building has since fa- fallen down, but Chumley's, a uh, very famous uh, speakeasy, had uh, this, it was a blacksmith shop, was the fake front. Now there was no blacksmith going on. Um, It was just the fake front for the alcohol in the back.
0: So what was the fake front for this speakeasy?
2: Very interesting. Good question. There wasn't one. What do you mean by that? Well, it was actually a real business that was operating, successful, uh, just closed when we uh, got into the space in 2004. It was called Ratner's Restaurant. It was a kosher restaurant, kosher dairy. And the back of Ratner's, where we are now, was where they had the illegal establishment. And like I said, 90 years ago, we actually had people in here drinking.
0: That being said, what do you know about the people that frequented the speakeasy back then?
2: Well, Prohibition started in 1920 and ended in 1933. Interesting thing about that is the uh, they call them the Roaring Twenties. The whole decade, there was no alcohol. I mean, maybe that played into the roaringness of it. But I, I find it, you know, it's you know, quite interesting and, and paradoxical that it was the Roaring Twenties. And, um, you know, if it, our space here is sort of my bastardized version of what the Twenties would have looked like. We have a lot of hardwoods. We have the paisley uh, fabric on the walls. We have a lot of art deco. But we also have Victorian style in here, too, because that was prevalent in the Twenties. But we, um, we just... Uh, most of the speakeasies of the day didn't have this; they were just hole-in-the-wall bars, and when they when the Feds would come in, they would break you know they would just break everything up. So you didn't have a really nice speakeasy like this. Again, my bastardized version. What I mean by that is I took the elements of the uh, of the generation of the decade, and I um, I, I sort of implemented it as.
0: Your interpretation of the day, I guess, right? right? but I
2: used—my I used, interpretation came through uh, what a speaking might, might have looked like if we fused it with ballrooms, say of The Shining, if you watch The Shining, if you watch The Aviator, if you watch some of those—The Sting, another one. And so, so this is my version of it by really fusing—because there was drinking going on in those old ballrooms— and again, this was not the typical speakeasy because they had a real business. They had, you know, it was, like I said, Ratner's Restaurant. They had a real business. And um, so it was sort of a supplement. The interesting thing about this is in this area, this is where the mafia started in this country. So land- Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Sequel would have meetings back here. And I got it all from my landlord. My, land- my landlords are the Ratner's people from the, 19, the 1918. So they went through Prohibition here. And I heard you know, I would get all the stories from them, you know. And it was it was really a, you know it was a great history lesson. But you know to have a Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, it makes all the sense in the world because this is where they lived. And again, it was a kosher restaurant. So, and Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel were both Jewish. So they Meyer Lansky had meanings back here. It's an interesting space too because now it's it's more partitioned, but. Ratner's Restaurant was a conglomeration of three different buildings, and they were all connected. So you can come in through this one door and wind up, you know, on Delancey Street when you, when you, you come in on North Fork. You can, there were, there were, all the basements were connected up until they partitioned uh, the buildings in 2005. Everything was connected, and you could actually go up the stairs and you could hop roofs, you could, you, know, you could run out, come out one door, go out to Suffolk Street or Norfolk Street or Delancey Street. And, you know, Meyer Lansky lived to be 81 years old, and he was very savvy and very shrewd, and there was a reason why he, of all gangsters, lived to be 81. He was very smart, which is probably why he had his meetings back here, because not worried about the feds so much, but worried about a hit on him. He can escape through the basement or the roofs, or, and the roofs connected to a, uh, an RKO theater, which is still on the corner. You can see it. I think it's a Burger King and a, and a Dunkin' Donuts. And you can run through the crowds there. I mean, there's so many there's so many ways out of here. Was this
0: place ever rated as far as you know? I don't, I never heard that. Like,
2: we try to be historically correct. And uh, if we serve all our drinks out of coffee cups. Why? Well, it's crazy, right? Well, first of all, you have to drink out of something, right? But the other thing is, we had, uh, It's a, it was my mother's, she gave me the history lesson on the coffee cups. It was to keep the police from from seeing you drinking a liquor. So it's also the time of, of the advent of the recipe, where you have discoloration of the liquor with yolks, egg yolks, or milk. Yuck! But it was desperate times, desperate measures. Right? You have you know you had to discolor it. You didn't want to you know have a cherry with a, a bourbon and make it obvious that what you were drinking. So you would discolor it you'd also be drinking out of coffee cups that's why the shakers of the day if you look back you look on ebay the shakers of the day emulate they look like a coffee pot or or a teapot that's because they were they were pouring tea into the coffee cups and it wasn't and uh it's a funny thing but that's 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 all historic we try to be historically correct here and that's that's the way we serve the drinks. I understand you also serve your beer in paper bags, your beer bottles. Well, again, to hide yes. It uh, again the prohibition. The, we uh, I don't know if that's historically correct. I mean, that could be in the Bronx uh, last week, you know, but uh, but we have uh, we do we do try to conceal, and uh, it goes along with our theme. But it also is historically correct. in, in those days, we want you, know, you had to be, you had to do these. You had to hide it. You couldn't drink it openly.
0: What about prohibition era drinks on your menu? Well, we have, we have Murder Inc., which is obvious
2: because we had uh, we have the history of the neighborhood. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of our drinks have those names, and and it's a funny thing. Things have changed obviously, but you have there was no vodka around. That's really a thing that later on. There was you know it was a gin, it was a bourbon, like it was a brandy Alexander. You know you didn't have you know. These vodka drinks, I have in 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 most people not. There's a uh, in our place and in many most places, I would believe that that's a uh, plurality of the drinks are going to be you know, weighted
0: heavily with the vodka. You referenced the various ways to get in and out of this building. What about secret rooms and secret doors? Well, we um,
2: the basement was crazy. Uh, it, it was a it was the it was like a cave. But, um, yes, we have, we, we have a room behind a bookshelf, and uh, you know, some of the speakeasies had a speakeasy within a speakeasy. I know the 21 Club also has a door in the basement there, and this was, I guess, was it a VIP room? Was it uh, to hide the fed? Fa- I'm not sure, but from you know, my research, there was sometimes speakeasies within speakeasies. So, yeah, we try to, again, be historically correct and have those rooms as well.
0: Have you found anything interesting here? Anything left behind? Well, before
2: the Ratners' people had bought the building in 1918, I believe it was, uh, there was a Woolworth, and we in in one of the rooms while we were taking some of the um, the uh, the wall, the sheetrock down or the wallpaper down, behind it were those teal type of tiles, and most people my age will remember that um, Woolworth had, you know, especially around where where you'd sit down at the uh, cafeteria table there. Again, if you're my age, I'm 55. But um, we also had some of the ceiling, and it was in disrepair, but I did save a little area. And there is a little area where I have a great porcelain, porcelainized tinned ceiling. Um, I wish I could have had more, and I would have done more of the room with that. But uh, it was great to see some of that. So, Johnny, what's your background? Born in the Bronx. I grew up in Queens, went to Bayside High School, um, and then started working in the business uh, at 16, but the drinking age was 18 at the time, in a place in Queens. I worked a lot of clubs in Queens. I was a doorman, a security guy at that age. Um, then came into Manhattan in the 80s, and I was the uh, that proverbial pick-and-choose guy at the door. <laughs> okay, guys, uh, not tonight. Guys, you on the list. No, sorry. You know, you know. You and you, okay. I tried, you know, I, I, not a power trip, but that was the job. And I worked a lot of different clubs in the city. And that, I was never a manager. I was never a bartender. Uh, that wasn't my thing, being at the door. And I got to meet a lot of people. I got to hear what the people were saying on the way in, what they were saying on the way out. But people would tell me I should write a book. I worked in a lot of celebrity clubs, and, you know, we have our share here as well. What's one story you can share with us now? Oh, one story I told last night was... Uh, the girl comes up, and it was the third anniversary of this one particular club I worked in on the Upper West Side. And uh, said, okay. Um, so she comes up with a girlfriend and says, uh, are you on the list? It's a private party night. She goes, uh, I was invited. I go, okay, but listen, it's an open bar downstairs, so I need to know, you know if you're on the list. And if you're on the list, great. If you're not, there's nothing I can do. Um, I don't know if I'm on the list. I go, ah, sorry then. And well, you know, What's your name? I'll, I'll look it up. Because goes, Brooke Shields. <laughs> so I just, I just, my head stayed down on the, on the list for a while, and I'm just looking and looking, thinking to myself, you're an idiot. And um, then I looked up and I said, I'm sorry, I haven't been reading the magazines lately. And she says, that's okay, because I haven't been in them lately. <laughs> so it was great. You know, I, I I have a lot of those stories, but that's
0: one of them. I wouldn't ask you, because I'm sure you wouldn't want to out any celebrities today, but I would imagine this place must be popular among celebrities.
2: I don't mind talking about who's been in here. I would never say, you know, we're not running a handbag store in Soho, and people sometimes come in here, blow off steam, or have a good time with their friends. Maybe they get a little loud within their group. So you know, so I'd never out anybody like that. But, uh, yeah, we had, we the first night we were open, our Pearl Jam, we opened with Pearl Jam Party. Um, that was pretty cool, and then... Uh, for me, as a Beatles fan, the best thing we ever had here I, is Paul McCartney. And the trifecta, another one, is uh, Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant. So Robert Plant did his uh, did a, a video here, uh, and then he did the rap party for the video. Uh, Paul McCartney, after that, he did a concert, a pop-up concert at Highline Ball, Ballroom in 2008, I think it was. We had the after party here. But for me, that's a pretty good trifecta. You, know? you just need the stones. But Adele was just uh, had an event here last year. Uh, Beckham.
0: Um, we get a lot of that, yes. So from a doorman, when did you open your very own first establishment? The first establishment, the first uh, bar restaurant
2: was the Auction House in 1993. Six months later, we had the Stanley Cup party when the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. Uh, Mark Messier and Brian Leach, uh, two good friends of mine, and, uh, it was a good time. It was a good time in the city. especially. It was it was a little different than it is now, but it was a great time in the city, though, the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. But that was my first place. My second place is a place called Revision, where it was the musical box. Again, I did that in 96, and uh, and now it's a place called Revision. I changed the theme up in 2010. Um, I own the Fetch in Warwick, New York, as well as the one that was in the upper east side. Um... um then the, the back room here, and I, I even branched out to Connecticut, um, a place in Shelton, Connecticut.
0: How did the back room come to you? How did you find this space?
2: Well, I was already in the game a little bit here. So, again, I, uh, in 1993, I opened the auction house. In 96, I opened the musical box. and In 97, I opened a place called Exile on the Upper West Side. And, and by that time, I think I had fetched, I had a place in Queens called the Victorian Lounge on Bell Boulevard for, for six years. So I was branching out a little bit. When you branch out, people find you. People find you way too easy. Now, I get, I get, I get emails about many, many different things that are available right now. And, I, and back then, it was a little, you had to be a little more in the know.
0: Now, did you know right off the bat that this was a speakeasy? Oh, yeah. Or did you just know the space? You did know. The musical box was a speakeasy back in the day as
2: a sense of, of like a 1990s speakeasy. We weren't, it wasn't contrived. We weren't trying to be a speakeasy. It was just, we were on the Lower East Side, and it was still a little edgy at the time, so you wanted to be careful. And we would always have our, our grading pulled down, so you couldn't, you didn't know what was there. Uh, there was no address on the door. There were, you couldn't see in. And it was basically, if you didn't know about it, there was a reason. And uh, it was wildly popular in the 90s and the early 2000s. And it was a speakeasy in the sense that you had to be in the know. And, again, it wasn't to create an aura. I ran the doors in the day when they want to keep everybody outside to make it look like a great big scene. And it was so cold inside because there was no bodies, but the air conditioner was on. And it was that's not what we were doing there. But... Um, the New York Times wrote an article. as the, We were part of the gentrification of Avenue B back in 97. And they wrote, Eric Apage was the writer. And he asked me, are there any other speakeasies you can take me to? Because he was doing an article. on. It. And I took him down here. I was very jealous. That that was the, the best entrance. You have to walk down a flight of stairs through a tunnel, in through a courtyard, and through a back door. And I was really jealous. And then to hear the history of the place here. And it, when it came up to me, I, could, I, I jumped on the possibility of being the owner here yeah and yes I did know the uh I did know the history
0: how long did it take you to get the place where it is today because you walk in and you really feel like this place has been untouched but you created this
2: right you know it's if there's anybody out there looking to get involved into their own business or restaurant um you really just have to immerse yourself in the theme uh of the day and uh we needed to, you know, I did a lot of research. Um, the Internet's a great tool for that right now. And, you know, whether it be images and stuff. And, you know, I have my version, like, you know, talking to my parents and grandparents what the 20s were. And I, I just, uh, just immersed myself in the theme, um, uh, whether it be the Paisley or you know what would work. And you know what type of... We couldn't do just leather couches. We, you know, we, it had to be... It had, we had to be in the theme, whether it's the coffee cups, whether it's... If we weren't in the theme, it really... We, we threw away the whole idea of the whole history, and the history is what differentiates us from any other place. There's us and the 21 Club. That's it. That's what's left in the city from the, the speakeasy that were open in the day. So what's it like here on a bustling night... It's a lot of fun, uh, and uh, Monday night we have a great jazz night. And Svetlana and the Delancey Five are uh, up and coming, really good uh, jazz band. They've been our house band for the last four years, and uh, it's great. They, they come in and they uh, spin their tunes. They're great to work with, and it's a really fun time, a lot of energy. Johnny, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: John Baronis is the owner of The Back Room, a true-to-life 1920s speakeasy on Manhattan's Lower East Side. You'll find it behind the gate that reads Lower East Side Toy Company on Norfolk Street. More info online at thebackroomnyc.com. This is Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Next on Cityscape, Toy Soldiers. They've captured kids' imaginations for generations, but are they still relevant in today's gadgetry-obsessed society? Jamie Delson sure thinks so. He's the founder and owner of the Toy Soldier Company, based right across the Hudson River from Manhattan in Jersey City. Jamie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. So what are your first memories of playing with Toy Soldiers?
1: I was four years old. And uh, sitting in my living room when my father, who was an international lawyer, came back from one of his many business trips and handed me a box of beautifully painted uh, Highlanders by a company called William Brittons. They were made of plastic, and they were as a marching band. And that uh, started me off. I still have that set. I got an inexhaustible thirst for more, and at every opportunity in my youth for birthdays, Christmases, and any other times I could... Persuade anyone else, I was given toy soldiers.
0: So, what would you say it was about toy soldiers in particular that moved you so much?
1: I guess it was history. I had always enjoyed seeing bagpipers in the, the bands that marched down Fifth Avenue. I grew up at 76th Street in Lexington, and you could actually hear the bagpipers in the bands two blocks away on Fifth, and I dragged my mother over to see them marching. So having them uh, in my living room floor was was quite a way of uh, replicating my experience.
0: So how big of a collection did you amass?
1: Well, when I was in sixth grade, I took my first uh, uh, turn at counting how many I had because I kept them in in shoeboxes. I probably had about 1,200 or 1,500 by then. And then by the time I was in high school, I had several thousand. My parents had a country house, and they gave me the attic to play War games. By the time I was 12, I was either inventing my own or reading books about war gaming written by a number of authors. And I used to lay out several thousand figures and use dice to determine combat.
0: So, how do you go from being a kid who played with and collected toy soldiers to being an adult who sells them for a living?
1: When I was uh, in my 20s, I was playing, I moved to the West Side right after I was at NYU. And I had a huge apartment, and was a bachelor, and the living room was uh, uh, 20 by 30 feet long, so it's quite a large battlefield for toy soldiers. And I displayed all the soldiers on shelves in the living room, and whenever I could get anybody to come and play a game, I'd play a game. And one day in 1984, so I was not quite 40, I was 36 or so, someone came to my house and said, do you have any idea what those are worth? And I said, I don't want to sell them. He said, well, if you sell those, you can buy more. So I looked into it, and I found that soldiers I'd bought as a child had uh, gained in value by 100%, 1,000%, 10,000%. They were soldiers I'd paid 35 cents for that were selling for $30 each. Wow. So I made up a list. At that point, I was a computer gaming critic. So I had every computer program known to man handed to me by the computer companies. And I wrote a catalog and put it out. And within a year, I'd given up being a freelance journalist and screenwriter and gone full-time to Toy Soldiers.
0: Hmm. How did the company expand then over the years from there?
1: The first year, I operated out of my living room. second year, (laughs) I rented a closet from a neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) Later the second year, I rented the basement from the superintendent. And when he was told he couldn't rent it legally, I moved to Dumbo, which at that point was still not very well known. And I rented a space in an old warehouse building on Front Street, which is probably now a luxury apartment. Uh, But it was a 600-square-foot space, which I outgrew in three months. I then the next year moved to a 5,000-square-foot warehouse in Jersey at a 10,000-square-foot warehouse in Jersey City across the street. and That's where I've been in the same place now for 18 years.
0: How expansive is your inventory today?
1: Uh, I am trying to cut back on my inventory today. When I first started the business, no one told me about a little thing called inventory control. And I went to everybody I knew, but they all worked at banks and law firms, and no one had the slightest idea of how to run a business. And there were no books on how to run a business, so I would just buy anything that came my way, thinking I would eventually sell it. But some things were home runs and some things were not. So there were soldiers where I bought 50,000 soldiers from a company in Italy, and they didn't sell very well, and I still have 10,000 left that I bought in 1985. Eventually, I caught on to the idea that you buy things and you sell things, but you don't keep a lot in stock. So now the 10,000 feet is now back down to 6,000 feet, and I'm selling off as much old stock as I can.
0: Who are the primary manufacturers of toy soldiers?
1: There used to be a lot more. When I was a kid, there were untold numbers, In the 70s, uh, it had crashed because of the arrival of Vietnam and G.I. Joe to the point where there weren't many. And when I first started business, one of my uh, good points was that I contacted international manufacturers to ask them to make toy soldiers again, which they hadn't used their mold for a decade. And because of me and a lot of other dealers, there was a renaissance in toy soldiers. And so from the 80s... And 90s and right up to the crash of 2007, there were hundreds of manufacturers. And then because of the crash, most of the manufacturers failed. And it was only in the last two or three years that it started to grow again. The main growth is now in metal figures, although plastic was the, the driving force in the soldier business for the longest time.
0: I was going to say I'm most familiar with the little green plastic ones.
1: Right, little green army men. And that's the way a lot of people who don't collect soldiers think of them. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that little green army men were just one tiny little part of a toy soldier uh, business. That if you if you were to look in the 60s or 50s, there were beautiful painted knights made in Germany and painted lead soldiers made in England, France, and Italy. And soldiers from all around the world have been available in every conceivable era, type of soldier, scale of soldier, so that green army men are, are just something that you bought at Walgreens. Or
0: right, <laughs> the dollar store even. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. And uh, they used to be a bag for 79 cents, and now that same bag, because the company that made those is now back in business, that same bag used to sell for 79 cents is now like fifteen ninety nine.
0: Are you primarily selling to collectors or simply to parents who are buying toy soldiers for their kids?
1: I wish I could say it was for kids, and I I keep trying to make it for kids, but I would say that 90% of our collectors are adult male. Uh, Before the market crash of 2007, uh, 50% of our customers were ordinary Joes who would have a little bit of money left at the end of their month and would spend $30 month in and month out for a bag of this or a box of that. But because everyone lost their jobs and the market and the world crashed, uh, those people, for the most part, have not come back, which is very sad. So that I would say that the market now is mainly either old collectors who have the money to spend or young collectors who are doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, and bankers who can afford to spend
0: do you think that toy soldiers for kids are a hard sell because of competition from video games and other technologies?
1: I do. What I hear most from parents whose, toy, whose kids play with toy soldiers is that they love it because the kid gets to live in a world of imagination that's not pre-programmed and handed to him. It's, it's not just computer games, because I love computer games, um, but it's also just a lot of the toys that G.I. Joe has a name. A Star Wars figure has a name, and they live in that world of Star Wars. When kids play with toy soldiers, the knights they play with one day are the spacemen they play with the next day. They pretend that the knights are spacemen, or the cowboys are spacemen, or the GIs are spacemen. And the setups that they do creates a world in which they can, they can live and play the way they want to live. And uh, that's, that's what I hope to find in parents who give soldiers to their children.
0: Do you ever yourself still play with toy soldiers, Jamie?
1: At every given opportunity. I just played <laughs> a game this weekend. Uh, my own collection of soldiers is now 2 million, which takes up about 20% of my warehouse. Wow. And I have several friends with whom I've played war games now for over 30 years.
0: That's fantastic. How young has this kept you, Jamie?
1: I'm 68, and I still am 15. It's something that if you can convince kids to try... I rarely find that kids, having been exposed to Toy Soldiers, don't love them.
0: Jamie, thanks so much. Thanks very much. Take care. Jamie Delson is the founder and owner of the Toy Soldier Company, based in Jersey City. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Zach Zalas. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks for listening. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.